Book Two, Chapter Seven of My Own Story by Emmeline Pankhurst. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Four Years of Peaceful Militancy, Chapter Seven. The first months of 1910 were occupied by the re-elected government in a struggle to keep control of affairs. A coalition with the Irish Party, the leaders of which agreed, if the Home Rule Bill were advanced, to stand by the budget. No publicly announced coalition with the Labour Party was made at that time. Care Hardy, at the annual conference of the party, announcing that they would continue to be independent of the government. This was important to us because it meant that the Labour Party, instead of entering into an agreement to give general support to all government measures, would be free to oppose the government in the event of continued withholding of a franchise bill. Other things combined to make us hopeful that the tide had turned in our favour. It was hinted to us that the government were weary of our opposition and were ready to end the struggle in the only possible way, providing they could do so without appearing to yield to coercion. We therefore, early in February, declared a truce to all militancy. Parliament met on February 15th, and the King's speech was read on February 21st. No mention of women's suffrage was made in the speech, nor was any private member successful in winning a place in the ballot for a suffrage bill. However, since the situation, on account of the proposed abolition of the Lord's power of veto, was strained and abnormal, we decided to wait patiently for a while. It was confidently expected that another general election would have to be held before the contentions between the two Houses of Parliament were settled, and this event unquestionably would have occurred, not later than June, but for the unexpected death of King Edward the Seventh. This interrupted the strained situation. The passing of the King served as an occasion for the temporary softening of animosities and produced a general disposition to compromise on all troubled issues. The question of women's enfranchisement was taken up again in this spirit, and in a manner altogether creditable to the members with whom the movement originated. A strictly non-party committee on women's suffrage had been established in the House of Commons in 1887, mainly through the efforts of Miss Lydia Becker, whom I have mentioned before as the Susan B. Anthony of the English suffrage movement. In 1906, for reasons not necessary to enumerate, the original committee had been allowed to lapse, the liberal supporters of women's suffrage forming a committee on their own. Now in this period of good feeling, at the suggestion of certain members, led by Mr. H. N. Brailsford, not himself a member of Parliament, formed another non-party body which they called the Conciliation Committee. Its object was declared to be the bringing together of the full strength of suffragists of the House of Commons, regardless of party affiliation, and of framing a suffrage measure that could be passed by the united effort. The Earl of Lytton accepted the chairmanship of the committee, and Mr. Brailsford was made its secretary. The committee consisted of twenty-five liberals, seventeen conservatives, six Irish nationalists, and six members of the Labour Party. Under difficulties which I can hardly hope to make clear to American readers, the committee laboured to frame a bill which would win the support of all sections of the House. The conservatives insisted on a moderate bill, whilst the liberals were concerned lest the terms of the bill should add to the power of the propertied classes. The original suffrage bill, drafted by my husband, Dr. Pankhurst, giving the vote to women on equal terms with men, was abandoned, and a bill was drawn up along the lines of the existing municipal franchise law. The basis of the municipal franchise is occupation, and the conciliation bill, as first drafted, proposed to extend the parliamentary vote to women householders and to women occupiers of business premises, paying ten pounds rental and upwards. It was estimated that about 95% of the women who would be enfranchised under the bill were householders. This, in England, does not mean a person occupying a whole house. Anyone who inhabits even a single room over which he or she exercises full control is a householder. The text of the conciliation bill was submitted to all the suffrage societies and other women's organizations, and it was accepted by every one of them. 
our official newspaper said editorially we of the women's social and political union are prepared to share in this united and peaceful action the new bill does not give us all that we want but we are for it if others are also for it it seemed certain that an overwhelming majority of the house of commons were for the bill and were prepared to vote it into law although we knew that it could not possibly pass unless the government agreed that it should we hoped that the leaders of all parties and the majority of their followers would unite in an agreement that the bill should pass this settlement by consent is rare in the english parliament but some extremely important and hard-fought measures have been carried thus the extension of the franchise in eighteen sixty seven is a case in point the conciliation bill was introduced into the house of commons on june fourteenth nineteen ten by mr d j shackleton and was received with the most extraordinary enthusiasm the newspapers remarked on the feeling of reality which marked the attitude of the house towards the bill it was plain that the members realized that here was no academic question upon which they were merely to debate and to register their opinions but a measure which was intended to be carried through all its stages and to be written into english law the enthusiasm of the house swept all over the kingdom the medical profession sent in a memorial in its favor signed by more than three hundred of the most distinguished men and women in this profession memorials from writers clergymen social workers artists actors musicians were also sent the women's liberal federation met and unanimously resolved to ask the prime minister to give full facilities to the bill some advanced spirits in the federation actually proposed to send them and there was a deputation to the house of commons with the resolution but this proposal was rejected as savoring too much of militancy a request for an interview was sent to mr asquith and he replied promising to receive at an early day representatives of both the liberal women's federation and of the national union of women's suffrage societies the joint deputation was received by mr asquith on june twenty first and lady malaren as a representative of the women's liberal federation spoke very directly to her party's leader she said in part if you refuse our request we shall have to go to the country and say you who are against the veto of the house of lords are placing a veto on the house of commons by refusing to allow a second reading of this bill mr asquith replied warily that he could not decide alone on such a serious matter but would have to consult his cabinet the majority of whom he admitted were suffragists their decision he said would be given in the house of commons the women's social and political union arranged a demonstration in support of the conciliation bill the greatest that had up to that time been made it was a national indeed an international affair in which all the suffrage groups took part and its massed ranks were so great that the procession required an hour and a half to pass a given point at the head marched six hundred and seventeen women white clad and holding long silver staves tipped with the broad arrow these were the women who had suffered imprisonment for the cause and all along the line of march they received a tribute of cheers from the public the immense albert hall the largest hall in england although it was packed from orchestra to the highest gallery was not large enough to hold all the marchers amid great joy and enthusiasm lord lytton delivered a stirring address in which he confidently predicted the speedy advance of the bill the women he declared had every reason to believe that their enfranchisement was actually at hand it was true that the time for passing a suffrage bill was ripe not in fifty years had the way been so clear because the momentary absence of ordinary legislation left the field open for an electoral reform bill yet when the prime minister was asked in the house of commons whether he would give the members an early opportunity for discussion the answer was not encouraging the government said mr asquith were prepared to give time before the close of the session for full debate and division on second reading but they could not allow any further facilities he stated frankly that he personally did not want the bill to pass, but the government realized that the House of Commons ought to have an opportunity, if that was their deliberate desire, for effectively dealing with the whole question. This cryptic utterance was taken by the majority of the suffragists, 
by the press and by the public generally to mean that the government were preparing gracefully to yield to the undoubted desire of the house of commons to pass the bill but the women's social and political union were doubtful mr asquith's remark was ambiguous and was capable of being interpreted in several ways it could mean that he was prepared to accept the verdict of the majority and let the bill pass through its stages that of course would be the only way to allow the house opportunity to effectively deal with the whole question on the other hand mr asquith might be intending to let the bill pass through its debating stages and be afterwards smothered in committee we feared treachery but in view of the announcement that the government had set apart july eleventh and twelve for debate on the second reading we preserved a spirit of waiting calm july twenty sixth had been fixed as the date for the adjournment of parliament and if the bill was voted on favorably on the twelfth there would be ample time to take it through its final stages when a bill passes at second reading it is normally sent upstairs to a grand committee which sits while the house of commons is transacting other business and thus the committee stage can proceed without special facilities the bill does not go back to the house until the report stages reach at which time the third and last reading occurs after that the bill goes to the house of lords a week at most is all that is required for this procedure a bill may be referred to the whole house and in this case it cannot be brought up for its committee stage unless it is given special facilities in our paper and in many public speeches we urge that the members vote to send the bill to a grand committee some days before the bill reached its second reading it was rumored that mr lloyd george was going to speak against it but we refused to credit this unfair to women as mr lloyd george had shown himself in various ways he had consistently posed as a staunch friend of women's suffrage and we could not believe that he would turn against us at the eleventh hour mr winston churchill whose speech to the women of dundee i quoted in a previous chapter the promoters of the bill also counted upon as it was known that he had more than once expressed sympathy with its objects but when the debate began we found both of these ardent suffragists arrayed against the bill mr churchill after making a conventional anti-suffrage speech in which he said that women did not need the ballot and that they really had no grievances attacked the conciliation bill because the class of women who would be enfranchised under it did not suit him some women he conceded ought to be enfranchised and he thought the best plan would be to select some of the best women of all classes on considerations of property education and earning capacity these special franchises would be carefully balanced so as not on the whole to give undue advantage to the property vote against the wage earning vote a more fantastic proposal and one less likely to find favor in the house of commons could not possibly be imagined mr churchill's second objection to the bill was that it was anti-democratic it seemed to us that anything was more democratic than his proposed fancy franchises mr lloyd george said that he agreed with everything mr churchill had said both relevant and irrelevant he made the amazing assertion that the conciliation committee that had drafted the bill was a committee of women meeting outside the house and that this committee said to the house of commons not only that they must vote for a women's suffrage bill but you must vote for the particular form upon which we agree and we will not even allow you to deliberate upon any other form of course these statements were wholly false the conciliation bill was drafted by men and it was introduced because the government had refused to bring in a party measure the suffragists would have been only too glad to have had the government deliberate on a broader form of suffrage because they refused to deliberate on any form the private bill was introduced this fact was brought forward in the course of mr lloyd george's speech it had been urged said he that this bill was better than none at all but why should that be the alternative what is the other called out a member but mr lloyd george dodged the question with a careless well i cannot say for the present later on he said if the promoters of this bill say that they regard the second reading merely as an affirmation of the principle of women's suffrage and if they promise that when they reintroduce the bill it will be in a form which will enable the house of commons to move any amendment either for restriction or extension i shall be happy to vote for this bill 
Mr. Philip Snowden, replying to this, said, We will withdraw this bill if the right honorable gentleman, on behalf of the government, or the Prime Minister himself, will undertake to give this House the opportunity of discussing and carrying through its various stages another form of franchise bill. If we cannot get that, then we shall prosecute this bill. The government made no reply to all this, and the debate proceeded. Thirty-nine speeches were made, the Prime Minister showing plainly in his speech that he intended to use all his power to prevent the bill becoming law. He began by saying that a franchise measure ought never be sent to a grand committee, but to one of the whole house. He also said that his conditions, that the majority of women should show beyond any doubt that they desired the franchise, and that the bill be democratic in its terms, had not been complied with. When the division was taken, it was seen that the conciliation bill had passed its second reading by a majority of 109, a larger majority than the government's far-famed budget or the House of Lords resolution had received. In fact, no measure during that Parliament had received so great a majority. 299 members voted for it, as against 190 opposed. Then the question rose as to which committee should deal with the bill. Mr. Asquith had said that all franchise bills should go on to a committee of the whole House. So in that division, his words moved many sincere friends of the bill to send it there. Others understood this was a mischievous course, but were afraid of incurring the anger of the Prime Minister. Of course, all the anti-suffragists voted the same way, and thus the bill went to the whole House. Even then, the bill could have been advanced to its final reading. The House had time on their hands, as virtually all important legislative work was halted because of the deadlock between the Lords and the Commons. Following the death of the King, a conference of leaders of the Conservative and Liberal parties had been arranged to adjust the matters at issue, and this conference had not yet reported. Hence, Parliament had little business on hand. The strongest possible pressure was brought to bear upon the government to give facilities to the conciliation bill. A number of meetings were held in support of the bill. The Men's Political Union for Women's Enfranchisement, the Men's League for Women's Suffrage, and the Conciliation Committee held a joint meeting in Hyde Park. Some of the old-school suffragists held another large meeting in Trafalgar Square. The Women's Social and Political Union, on July 23rd, which was the anniversary of the day in 1867 on which working men, agitating for their vote, had pulled down the Hyde Park railings, held another enormous demonstration there. A space of half a square mile was cleared, forty platforms erected, and two great processions marched from east and west to the meeting. Many other suffrage societies cooperated with us on this occasion. On the very day of that meeting, Mr. Asquith wrote to Lord Lytton, refusing to allow any more time for the bill during that session. Those who still had faith in the government could be induced to do justice to women set their hopes on the autumn session of Parliament. Resolutions urging the government to give the bill facilities during the autumn were sent, not only by suffrage associations, but from many organizations of men. The corporations of 38 cities, including Liverpool, Manchester, Glasgow, Dublin, and Cork, sent resolutions to this effect. Cabinet ministers were besieged with requests to receive deputations of women, and since the country was on the verge of a general election, and the Liberal Party wanted the services of women, their requests could not altogether be ignored. Mr. Asquith, early in October, received a deputation of women from his own constituency at East Fife, but all he had to tell them was that the bill could not be advanced that year. What about next year, they asked, and he replied shortly, wait and see. It had been exceedingly difficult during these troublous days to hold all the members of the WSPU to the truce, and when it became perfectly apparent that the conciliation bill was doomed, war was again declared. At a great meeting held in Albert Hall on November 10th, I myself threw down the gauge of battle. I said, because I wanted the whole matter to be clearly understood by the public as well as by our members, this is the last constitutional effort of the Women's Social and Political Union to secure the passage of the bill into law. If the bill, in spite of our efforts, is killed by the government, then first of all, I have to say there is an end of the truce. If we are met by the statement that there is no power to secure on the floor of the House of Commons time for our measure, then our first step is to say, we take it out of your hands, since you fail to help us, and we resume the direction of the campaign ourselves. 
another deputation i declared must go to the house of commons to carry a petition to the prime minister i myself would lead and if no one cared to follow me i would go alone instantly all over the hall women sprang to their feet crying out mrs pankhurst i will go with you i will go i will go and i knew that our brave women were as ever ready to give themselves their very lives if need be for the cause of freedom the autumn session convened on friday november eighteenth and mr asquith announced that parliament would be adjourned on november twenty eighth while his speech was in progress four hundred fifty women in small groups to keep within the strict letter of the law were marching from caxton hall and from the headquarters of the union how to tell the story of that dreadful day black friday as it lives in our memory how to describe what happened to the english women at the behest of an english government is a difficult task i will try to tell it as simply and as accurately as possible the plain facts baldly stated i am aware will strain credulity remember that the country was on the eve of a general election and that the liberal party needed the help of the liberal women this fact made the wholesale arrest and imprisonment of great numbers of women who were demanding the passage of the conciliation bill extremely undesirable from the government's point of view the women's liberal federations also wanted the passage of the conciliation bill although they were not ready to fight for it what the government feared was that the liberal women would be stirred by our sufferings into refraining from doing election work from the party so the government conceived a plan whereby the suffragettes were to be punished were to be turned back and defeated in their purpose of reaching the house but would not be arrested orders were evidently given that the police were to be present in the streets and that the women were to be thrown from one uniformed or ununiformed policeman to another that they were to be so rudely treated that sheer terror would cause them to turn back i say orders were given and as one proof of this i can first point out that on all previous occasions the police had first tried to turn back the deputation and when the women persisted in going forward had arrested them at times individual policemen had behaved with cruelty and malice towards us but never anything like the unanimous and wholesale brutality that was shown on black friday the government very likely hoped that the violence of the police toward the women would be emulated by the crowds but instead the crowds proved remarkably friendly they pushed and struggled to make a clear pathway for us and in spite of the efforts of the police my small deputation actually succeeded in reaching the door of the stranger's entrance we mounted the steps to the enthusiastic cheers of the multitude that filled the streets and we stood there for hours gazing down on a scene which i hope never to look upon again at intervals of two or three minutes small groups of women appeared in the square trying to join us at the stranger's entrance they carried little banners inscribed with various mottoes asquith has vetoed our bill where there's a bill there's a way women's will beats asquith's won't and the like these banners the police seized and tore in pieces then they laid hands on the women and literally threw them from one man to another some of the police used their fists striking the women in their faces their breasts their shoulders one woman i saw throw down with the violence three or four times in rapid succession until at last she lay only half conscious against the curb and in a serious condition was carried away by kindly strangers every moment the struggle grew fiercer as more and more women arrived on the scene women many of them eminent in art in medicine and science women of european reputation subjected to treatment that would not have been meted out to criminals and all for the offence of insisting upon the right of peaceful petition this struggle lasted for about an hour more and more women successfully pushing their way past the police and gaining the steps of the house then the mounted police were summoned to turn the women back but desperately determined the women fearing not the hoofs of the horses or the crushing violence of the police did not swerve from their purpose and now the crowds began to murmur people began to demand why the women were being knocked about why if they were breaking the law they were not arrested why if they were not breaking the law they were not permitted to go on unmolested for a long time nearly five hours the police continued to hustle and beat the women the crowds becoming more and more turbulent in their defence 
Then, at last, the police were obligated to make arrests. One hundred fifteen women and four men, most of them bruised and choked and otherwise injured, were arrested. While all this was going on outside the House of Commons, the Prime Minister was obstinately refusing to listen to the counsels of some of the saner and more justice-loving members of the House. Keir Hardy, Sir Alfred Mondel, and others urged Mr. Asquith to receive the deputation, and Lord Castlereagh went so far as to move as an amendment to a government proposal, another proposal which would have compelled the government to provide immediate facilities to the conciliation bill. We heard of what was going on, and I sent in for one and another friendly member and made every possible effort to influence them in favor of Lord Castlereagh's amendment. I pointed to the brutal struggle that was going on in the square, and I begged them to go back and tell the others that it must be stopped. But distressed as some of them undoubtedly were, they assured me there was not the slightest chance for the amendment. "'Is there not a single man in the House of Commons,' I cried, "'who will stand up for us, who will make the House see that the amendment must go forward?' Well, perhaps men, but all save fifty-two put their party loyalty before their manhood, and because Lord Castlereagh's proposal would have meant censure of the government, they refused to support it. This did not happen, however, until Mr. Asquith had resorted to his usual crafty device of a promise of future action. In this instance he promised to make a statement on behalf of the government on the following Tuesday. The next morning the suffrage prisoners were arraigned in police court or rather, they were kept waiting outside the courtroom, while Mr. Musket, who prosecuted on behalf of the Chief Commissioner of Police, explained to the astounded magistrate that he had received orders from the Home Secretary that the prisoners should all be discharged. Mr. Churchill, it was declared, had had the matter under careful consideration, and had decided that no public advantage would be gained by proceeding with the prosecution, and accordingly no evidence would be given against the prisoners. Subdued laughter, and according to the newspapers, some contemptuous booing were raised in the court, and when order was restored, the prisoners were brought in batches and told they were discharged. On the following Tuesday, the WSPU held another meeting of the Women's Parliament in Caxton Hall to hear the news from the House of Commons. Mr. Asquith said, The government will, if they are still in power, give facilities in the next Parliament for effectively proceeding with a franchise bill which is so framed as to admit of free amendment. He would not promise that this would be done during the first year of Parliament. We had demanded facilities for the conciliation bill, and Mr. Asquith's promise was too vague and too ambiguous to please us. Parliament now about to be dissolved had lasted a scant ten months. The next one might not last longer. Therefore Mr. Asquith's promise, as usual, meant nothing at all. I said to the women, I am going to Downing Street. Come along, all of you. And we went. We found a small force of police in Downing Street, and we easily broke through their line and would have invaded the Prime Minister's residence had not reinforcements of police arrived on the scene. Mr. Asquith himself appeared unexpectedly, and as we thought, very opportunely. Before he could have realized what was happening, he found himself surrounded by angry suffragettes. He was well hooted, and it is said well shaken, before he was rescued by the police. As his taxicab rushed away, some object struck one of the windows, smashing it. Another cabinet minister, Mr. Burrell, unwittingly got into the midst of the melee, and I am obliged to record that he was pretty thoroughly hustled. But it is not true that his leg was injured by the women. His haste to jump into a taxicab resulted in a slightly sprained ankle. That night and the following day windows were broken in the houses of Sir Edward Grey, Mr. Winston Churchill, Mr. Lewis Harcourt, and Mr. John Burns, and also in the official residences of the Premier and Chancellor of the Exchequer. That week 160 suffragettes were arrested, but all except those charged with window-breaking or assault were discharged. This amazing court action established two things. First, that when the Home Secretary stated that he had no responsibility for the prosecution and sentencing of suffrage prisoners, he told a colossal falsehood. And second, that the government fully realized that it was bad election tactics to be responsible for the imprisonment of women of good character who were struggling for citizenship. End of Book Two, 
chapter seven